Hey everyone, Ed Helms here. You might know me as Andy from The Office or Stu from The Hangover, or you might know me as the co-founder of BGS. I know, I'm just as surprised as you. They let me co-found something. But here's the thing, we're doing it again. Yeah, this time we're leaping into our other deep love, the vast and vibrant world of country music with something we're calling Good Country. Now this isn't just another newsletter. Think of Good Country as a place. A place where you can explore, learn, and dig into all of what makes country good. Seriously, country music has so much going on these days, and it's coming from so many different deep and soulful places, and we're here to cover all of it. Just as we've done for Bluegrass and Roots Music at BGS for over a decade. So sign up now at goodcountrybgs.substack.com and let us bring you the many sides of country music straight to your inbox. Good country. It's a nice place to be. Hey, it's Cindy Howes from the podcast Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. Check out our very special 250th episode featuring an interview and performance with Basic Folk co-host Lizzie No. I feel like most women I know have an experience where They've been working and working and working to perform and to execute and to please everyone else. And then things sort of fall apart a little bit in some way or another. And partying can actually be a really important step towards getting free because it shows you where you need to fall apart and being on the dance floor, like in community with mm. other women and mm -hmm. in community with queer people. Mm -hmm. Like for me, those experiences have been so important. This time, Lizzie is on the other side of the mic talking about and performing songs from their brand new album, Half Seas. Basic Folk's 250th episode with Lizzie No is streaming now on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Join us there or wherever you get podcasts. Hey everyone, Ed Helms here. You might know me as Andy from The Office or Stu from The Hangover, or you might know me as the co-founder of BGS. I know, I'm just as surprised as you. They let me co-found something. But here's the thing, we're doing it again. Yeah, this time we're leaping into our other deep love, the vast and vibrant world of country music with something we're calling Good Country. Now, this isn't just another newsletter. Think of Good Country as a place. A place where you can explore, learn, and dig into all of what makes country good. Seriously, country music has so much going on these days, and it's coming from so many different deep and soulful places, and we're here to cover all of it. Just as we've done for Bluegrass and Roots Music at BGS for over a decade. So sign up now at goodcountrybgs.substack.com and let us bring you the many sides of country music straight to your inbox. Good country. It's a nice place to be. Hey, it's Cindy Howes from the podcast Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. Check out our very special 250th episode featuring an interview and performance with Basic Folk co-host Lizzie No. I feel like most women I know have an experience where they've been working and working and working to perform and to execute and to please everyone else. And then things sort of fall apart a little bit in some way or another. And partying can actually be a really important step towards getting free because it shows you where you need to fall apart and being on the dance floor, like in community with mm. other women and mm -hmm. in community with queer people. Mm -hmm. Like for me, 
those experiences have been so important. This time, Lizzie is on the other side of the mic talking about and performing songs from their brand new album, Half Seas. Basic Folk's 250th episode with Lizzie No is streaming now on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Join us there or wherever you get podcasts. A native of Tryon, North Carolina, Nina Simone stands as one of the greatest singers of the 20th century. She had a difficult life in the Jim Crow South, growing up as one of eight children in a small cabin. But such was her power as singer, pianist, and personality that she forged a musical legacy that still casts a long shadow more than two decades after her death. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. Rhiannon Giddens, Alicia Keys, Lauren Hill, and Mary J. Blige are among the prominent artists who bear her stamp. Her words are always running through me, guiding. And also Jackie Shelton Green, North Carolina's first Black Poet Laureate. She's certainly one of my spirit guides. Though born 20 years later than Simone, Green has had to confront many of the same racial issues in making her way forward as an artist. You know, she didn't just talk about what was wrong, but she honored her distaste with it. Her entire body embodied those responses. But Simone's history and body of work provided an inspiring roadmap. It helped Green become one of North Carolina's most acclaimed writers, a member of the state's Literary Hall of Fame, recording artist, and since 2018, Poet Laureate. We had a talk about that after Green visited Simone's birthplace in Tryon for the first time. I don't know what our presence would have felt like because I never met Nina Simone, but I certainly felt the presence of love in that home, and it was truly a home. And you'll get to hear our conversation today on a special episode of Carolina Calling. From the bluegrass situation and come here in North Carolina, this is Carolina Calling, exploring the history and music of North Carolina from the people who made it. I'm David Menconi, and this is a special episode about the legacy of Nina Simone as well as those who have followed. Thank you again so much for making the time. Uh, I wanted to start by asking, what did it feel like when you went to visit Nina's cabin for the first time a few months back. Oh my gosh, I had this amazing, wow, life-changing experience, and it really was, to visit Nina Simone's uh, childhood home, the home that she actually was raised in, and to know that she and I slept on the Carolina skies together was just another amazing inspiration for me, thinking about how much she influenced me as a young teen when I first discovered her. So to be there in that space and to experience what to me was a very sacred moment because I could feel her ancestors. I could feel, I don't know what her presence would have felt like because I never met Nina Simone, but I certainly felt the presence of, of love in that home. And it was truly a home. Can you paint a picture of what that part of North Carolina may have been like? around the time he was born in 1938? You know, I didn't discover the mountains. I shouldn't say I didn't discover the mountains, but I did not visit the mountains as a child. 
Uh, I didn't have a frame of reference for Western North Carolina until I perhaps was in my 20s. And going to Western North Carolina, I remember for the first time, what was very, very apparent to me was the scarcity of people who looked like me, uh, the scarcity of of Black people, of African-Americans moving around. So I can only imagine that being there as a young Black girl, you really had to know who you were and you really saw yourself inside of, I'm sure, the insular Black community that you were schooled in, that you played in, knowing that you know, racism, classism, and and all of the societal norms that were at play and still at play, uh, that, that those are the things that she was straddling. So when I was there, I was very conscious of where I was because space and location and geography does inform who we are, who we become, where we go. Talk a little bit more about what kind of world and community you were brought up in. This was a very difficult time for everybody, but especially people of color. Well, just being in that space, and there are still remnants of community there. Uh, there's church there. There are people there. That road is not unfamiliar to me. That road that faces, you know, that little side road that faces her, her home where people gathered together. I'm sure there was music making and singing, a desperate need to be self-fulfilled, a desperate need for Blacks at that time to be self-purposed and to be able to you know, transcend the barriers that were present for them. But what I felt was a very close-knit community. You know, those houses are pretty close together around where she lived. And I can only imagine as I grew up in a segregated South as well, I know what that felt like. And it's really funny because I, because we live in communities like this that are tight-knit, I expect that there was segregation. I know there was segregation, but there was also the intermingling of black and white and native people because it is a small mountain community where people's lives have to cross, have to blend, have to work together. And that's what that's what I think she experienced. And you know, the fact that she was able to go to school in Charlotte and come back was really essential to have uh I think she was Jewish, a Jewish piano teacher at a very young age. I remember having a white mentor at the age of 12. And she wasn't a white mentor to me. She was the woman who saw creativity, who saw a spark in my intellect that she wanted to be a part of a circle of a community and family that nurtured that intellect. And I believe that Nina was embraced in that way, even though there was a segregation, but I remember holding that playbill, the little program of her recital, and thinking about what what her parents must have felt, you know, walking into a space where her child was actually playing on an integrated program of black and white children. It may seem rare, but I know in small towns, communities were close-knit like that, black and white communities. What was your first exposure to her music? Do you, do you remember? Was it records around the house? or? Well, my mom's brother had a juke joint uh, when he was young. He and my mom had a juke joint. Literally uh, across Highway 70, we lived, my family home is on Highway 70 in Eflin. And that juke joint was across the road 
and kind of a semi little wooded area. And that space was still there uh, when I grew up. But more importantly, there were LPs. Oh my gosh. There were just what felt like thousands of like boxes and LPs in corners and LPs on bookshelves. And uh, we had several gramophones um, and the ones that you, you know, you had to wind up. And my brother and I would play those. And when we were being very reckless, we would play Frisbee with some of those albums. But Nina Simone was in that bunch. But I didn't really pay attention to Nina's music until I was a teenager. And her recording for women was released. And then Mississippi Goddamn and To Be Young, Gifted and Black. So to be growing up in the 60s and really in search of my own identity or trying to reconcile with difference in the South that I grew up with and trying to just figure it all out, like, where do I stand? You know, like, who am I inside of this configuration of, of segregation in this configuration of, of the possibility of opportunities? It was Nina Simone who, her music was the most daring, most assertive music I'd heard except when James Brown said, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. So I just remember I felt lifted. Uh, I felt maybe then it might have been a sense of arrogance, but I, I truly felt, I felt that this woman was distributing power through her voice, through her music. And because we as a people connect to music and resonate with music, be it the church where spirituals are, be it music for consolation and healing for the wounded, or just be it for a real good Saturday night get down, you know, with some ribs and a beer. Nina did that for us. You know, we have amazing musicians who have just, just magically weaved a way of being in the world. But for me, Nina Simone told me, one, that I had a right to be in this world, that I needed to claim it. And also is that that she was going to sing it, that she was going to sing it for all the children, not just me. So that was my first, my first feeling for her was just this bold woman who also as a child who loved poetry and was writing poetry, I had a quiet voice. My voice was little and I was afraid for it to be big. I didn't quite know what poetry meant. I didn't quite know what my writing poetry meant, but it was Nina Simone that said, it does mean something and you have to say it loud. You have to, you have to nurture, you have to, you know, you have to fine tune this voice and make sure that it is as loud as hers. And I'm so grateful. She will never know, but I'm just so grateful that, that she uplifted me that way. So long, long, you know, many decades since she left America and 20 years past her death. Do you see her music as connected or disconnected from the place she grew up? Well, I don't know about the place she grew up because, you know, I don't live there. I remember the stories of, you know, people celebrating that statue and people being appalled that this black woman's statue image was on the main drag of their white city. But I know one thing, that you can't, we cannot erase her. I think she's very connected 
to the state of North Carolina. I think she's very connected to not just African-American people, but to many, many people who who seek her work, not stumble on it, but people who seek her, who research her, and who know that she is a large tapestry on this huge landscape of the South and, and what it meant to be a South and what it meant to defy the rules of the South as we know them. More specific to the South, um, what do you think she may have gotten out of being an artist from this state, North Carolina, than she wouldn't have gotten? You know, I, I love North Carolina. I think North Carolina is very, is very special. There's something, you know, about its topography that's, that's enchanting. It's so diverse, as we know, from the mountains to the coast. But I think what Nina sourced from growing up in her mountain town was how the, the people, the culture texturized what she wrote and what she's saying. I don't think that that grit that she has came out of New York City or came out of her influence, being influenced by European musicians or, or European lifestyles. That grit is from these grounds, is from the red clay, is from um, those mountains that she could see in her town. It's from witnessing farmers and witnessing men who worked in mines, uh, women who worked for other women, the, the, the witness of, of life that the South offered to her. I really believe that's what added all of these incredible layers to uh, everything that she created and, and composed. How do you think her feelings about where she came from may have changed over time? Um, it started out fairly difficult and that have softened any, do you think? I don't know if it's softened. Um, I understand how how this culture embitters one, especially during that time frame. What I would like to think is when she became a woman of the world, to be able to compare and contrast the different cultures. You know, I'm, I'm going to say this, and I hope it makes sense, but we cannot get away from who we belong to. You know, we, we may fight it, we may push it away, but I remember the stories that her sister told me when I met her, when I was with you, David, you know, to her people, she was just Eunice. And I feel that same way to my people. I'm not the poet laureate. I'm Jackie. I'm Ivory and Connie's little girl still, you know, I'm Imani Segun and Eva's mama. I'm Eva's grandmother. I mean, granddaughter. And, and I say these things because I'm not sure where she was, how she made peace. But I think she certainly, I, I hear the respectability from where she comes from in her music, you, you know, and the fact that, you know, she never went back there. I do know that sometimes we can't go back home, but her grace, you know, people see Nina Simone sometimes as very, she was a large woman and large meaning, you know, she, she had a statue. I mean, an imposing personality, an imposing presence, a declarative presence that she is here, that she existed. And even in a small town like that, I think the people, the people there now are struggling with how to make that fit. I remember hearing, you know, there were people who denied that she was from her town for a while. So, you know, I, I, I think she embraced where she was from. I really do. And I don't know at the end of her life or as she got older, how that panned out. But we do know that 
She was very family-centered and family-oriented and remained very connected to her family. You mentioned local efforts there, remembering. Um, you know, credit where it's due, do you think her legacy in the area has received what it should or compared to like what Shelby does for Earl Scruggs and John Gibson? I think it's a different comparison, if, if that makes sense. I think it's being heightened. I, th- I, you know, I'm excited about the possibilities of what can happen. What I would like to think is that educators, public school teachers, cultural organizations and centers, political centers, sororities, fraternities, I am hoping that all of these different community organizations are lifting her up because that's where it it really happens. You know, we can put all the statutes on Main Street that we want to, but unless the history of why that statute is there, why it matters that it's there, why it should be there, why it must be there, if school children don't understand and don't see themselves inside of her story, then it's almost, it's just a statute. So it, it has to, you know, it has to be developed she has to become curriculum. You know, I don't know if they have a Nina Simone day, but wouldn't it be fabulous if there were? I don't know if there may be a Nina Simone day, but um, wouldn't it be fabulous if if the high school bands were required uh, to learn at least, you know, five of, of her musical renditions? Uh, so I am, it is my hope that the community can see this as a very viable and powerful community building exercise to raise up who she was and to not let her legacy. She has a legacy. She has a legacy in American history books, if not in her local history books. She has a legacy. But it's very important that these next generations that are coming after her know who she is and are able to, like I said, I I really hope they can see themselves as young budding, emerging creative makers see themselves in her legacy. Well, speaking of that, you know, traveling the state as poet laureate doing events, what impact does she continue to have in this state on on art, music, culture? Young people you meet, have they heard of her? Do they know her work? Not too many high school students. Uh, You'd be surprised how many high school teachers don't know who Nina Simone is. What I find is more African-American communities know who Nina Simone is. And as the poet laureate, you know, I try to give her as much as much space when I'm speaking as I can. Uh, I'll use a quote or I'll use bars from from a song of, of hers to, you know, to open a poetry reading that, that I'm doing. But I see that influence on Nina Freelon and composers and musicians and music directors and faculty at NCCU talk about the influence of Nina Simone on their lives. And not just at NCCU, but even at UNC and at Duke. So, you know, scholars are continuing to teach her. Scholars are continuing to create those educational formats, those educational venues I'm talking about. And at a community level, you know, what's what's fabulous is sometimes just being somewhere and, and Nina Simone comes on in my nail salon or it comes on, at, uh, you know, in a grocery store that has those looped music 
you know, music just playing over and over and over again. Uh, and I'll stop and say, y'all know who that is? <laughs> to anybody, you know, like, what are you talking about? I'm like, the music. And they're like, oh, that's Nina Simone. So, yeah, I, I, I think her presence is felt, not as much as I'd like for it to be felt. And I still believe that that happens at, at the community level, and it also happens at the education level in our elementary, middle schools, high schools, and, you know, higher institutions. That's where it will take root. Are, are there specific writings of yours you could point to as bearing her stamp? Oh, wow. I listen to a lot of Nina Simone when I'm writing. Um, or I, I did write, I actually choreographed back in the 60s when I was teaching, uh, maybe it was the 70s, early 70s, when I was teaching uh, dance in a summer dance program, I wrote a stage piece based on four women. Of course, I have no idea where it is, but I but I wrote this long piece and and choreographed it. And the young women who danced it are now uh, in their sixties, <laughs> which is kind of funny. And I was at at my cousin's funeral in D.C. and her daughter uh, said to me. Do you remember you had us in those little white leotards? Like we had no idea what we were doing, but you know, you had choreographed us to Nina Simone for women and uh Earth, Wind, and Fire. And I forget, I, I forgot which which song was it, Earth, Wind, and Fire. And she said, you know, every time I come home and I run into some of some of those women who were little girls with me, she said, we always talk about. They said, we never would have known who Nina Simone was if you, and, and, you know, I didn't just choreograph a piece, but they had to go to the library and look up Nina Simone. This was before com computers, and I played her music, and and we talked about what four women meant. So it's not so much that I write poetics based on something, and I don't know if this makes sense, but her words are like always running through me, guiding. Like that, that four women was personal. Four women was was very personal. It exemplified my own lineage as a woman of color, uh, as a woman of color in the South, who, you know, like most folk in the in the South have mixed blood, and how I was trying to figure that all out, you know, untie all the roots and look at them carefully. The, the Irish, the Native American, the African American, and the God knows what what else there is there. So I remember I was very it was a very emotional response for me. And I knew I had to do something with it. But Nina Simone is like a ghost. I mean, I don't like the word ghost, but she's she's certainly one of my spirit guides. She's certainly one of my spirit guides. So sometimes she's guiding that paper, especially when I'm writing a political piece, I will tell you when I most heard Nina, Nina's voice inside my voice is when I wrote, Oh, my brother, my brother, which was a response to police violence, police brutality uh, in our country. And yeah, I wanted it to be, to be a wail, a scream. I wanted it to be a, how fucking dare you? Uh, yeah. So I, I could say that that's when I've most felt her writing writing these poems and no poetry, a poem I have on my album called No Poetry, which is about there. there's not enough poetry that anyone can write. 
you know, to justify the loss of these lives, if that makes sense at all, David. It does. And I was going to mention your album. Seems like that was a project where you, her presence would be felt for you. Yeah. I mean, I, I never thought about having an album. And when I was approached about doing it, of course, I felt her nudging me. You know, there, there are many songwriters from the South. I could, you know, uh, Roberta Flack was somebody that I really resonated with when she first, you know, I first heard her music. And of course, some of the the, the other male musicians, and I grew up around tons of, of African-American blues banjo players. Uh, but it was Nina, you know, it was Nina who, you know, her facial expressions, her her honoring her distaste with what was wrong. You know, she didn't just talk about what was wrong, but she honored her distaste with it. And, you know, her 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 entire body embodied those responses. I remember when MLK died, I remember seeing her on TV and remember seeing her in, in, in James Baldwin, you know, at the funeral and and both of them just kind of embodying this, you know, they were angry and yet it was a dignified time because they were at MLK's funeral, but, you know, to, to, to witness how these two people, two, two famous African-American forces had left this country and yet their presence is so much a part of this country still, you know, I'm reaching back to James Baldwin almost every other day, looking at what almost would be a prophecy of what's happening in our culture right now. You know, I wanted to honor what they've given to me. So The River Speaks of Thirst is uh, 13 poems that have been set to music, beautifully set to music. I'm honored to have the voices of Jennifer Evans, who is singing on kind of some gospel riffs to a, Jean, a Juneteenth poem on the former Chapel Hill, first poet laureate of Chapel Hill, C.J. Suet, because I, I always heard a male voice uh, rifting no poetry, reading no poetry. I just always heard a masculine voice doing that. And my dear sister friend, Nina Freelon, who collaborates with me, on the title song, The River Speaks of Thirst, in sort of a call response. I think that that Nina's message to me, just like Audre Lorde's message was to me when I did meet Audre Lorde, is we have to create and invent in spite of everything, that we cannot be silenced, that we just cannot be silenced. And that's how Nina Simone shows up. And my everyday life is reminding myself you can't be quiet. You must not be quiet. Outstanding. Anything else you might want to say? I'm sure there's tons, but that I haven't asked you about. Well, you know, I've been thinking about this for a long time that I would like to do. At some point, I'm going to write uh, a, a collection dedicated to, to Nina Simone. And I have this friend named David who's been prodding me to collaborate on a fabulous book of narratives um, from different scholars and everyday people about Nina Simone's life. So uh, when my tenure as a North Carolina Poet Laureate comes to an end, that's 
that's a brave project, a brave landscape that I am going to take a deep breath and jump into. So thank you, David, for, um, for, for not letting up, for continuing to gently push me that way. And I'm so grateful for it. You must not be quiet. That call to courage is something countless artists have taken away from Nina Simone's uncompromising artistry. The other side of that might be, you must listen. With Jackie Shelton Green and others carrying the torch, it's there to hear. Carolina Calling is a production of The Bluegrass Situation in Come Here, North Carolina. Our theme music is the song Eerie Fiddler, written and recorded by Andrew Marlin. The roots of American music run deep in North Carolina. Learn more by visiting comeherenc.com. Don't forget to follow, subscribe, and rate us wherever you get your podcasts, as it really helps us introduce the show to new listeners. Discover more roots music podcasts at thebluegrasssituation.com. I'm David Minconi. Thanks for listening.